0: Hello, my name is Michael Albert, and I'm the host of the podcast titled Revolution Z. This is episode number 27. It's about vision, and in particular, it's about participatory socialist kinship. Before we begin, I'd like to urge you to consider going to patreon.com. That's www.patreon.com slash Z where you can become a a patron of our podcast. We actually need this kind of support in a very serious way in order to continue functioning. So please consider doing that. So now on to episode 27. In discussing visions for gender relations, it seems sensible that we have in mind a good society's procreation, nurturance, education, socialization, sexuality, and organization of daily home life. And it seems sensible that we cast a special eye on three dimensions of implications, gender, sexuality, and age. The values guiding Revolution Z's explorations imply that accomplishing kinship functions should enhance solidarity among all involved actors. It should preserve diversity of options and outcomes. It should apportion benefits and responsibilities fairly. And it should convey appropriate self-managing influence to all people involved. With that set of broad aims, will participatory socialism, or participatory society, still have families as we now know them? Will upbringing diverge greatly from what we now know? What about courting and sexual coupling? How will the old and young interact? Fulfilling our favored values will certainly require steadily reducing features that produce systematic sexism, homophobia, transphobia, and ageism. It will also require gaining an array of positive improvements, many of which we can only guess at until we have experimented with more complete proposals of visionary kinship institutions. But even in a wonderful society, we can confidently predict that there will still be unrequited love. Sex will not always escape turmoil. Rape and other violent acts will sometimes occur, albeit less often than now. Similarly, social change can't remove the pain of losing friends and relatives to premature death. It can't make all adults equally adept at relating positively with children, or with the elderly, or vice versa. Perhaps we can reasonably anticipate and seek that innovations eliminate structural coercion based on gender, sexuality, or age. We can reasonably anticipate and seek that innovations eliminate systematic violations of solidarity, diversity, equity, and self-management. That much seems fine at the level of broad values, but what will institutions defining vastly better kinship actually look like? Temporary contemporary society, sexism takes overt form in men having dominant and wealthier conditions. It takes more subtle form via long-standing habits of communication and time-entrenched behavior patterns. It is produced and reproduced by institutions that differentiate men and women, including coercively, as in rape and battering, but also more subtly via what seem to be mutually accepted role differences in whole-life work and celebration. It also includes the cumulative impact of past sexist experiences on what people think, desire, and feel, and on what people habitually or even self-consciously do. If we want to find the source of gender injustice, we need to determine which social institutions and which roles within those institutions give men and women responsibilities, conditions, and circumstances that engender motivations, consciousness, and preferences that elevate men above women. One structure we find in all societies that have sexist hierarchies is that men father, but women mother. That is, we find two dissimilar roles which men and women fill vis-a-vis the next generation, with each role socially defined and in only a minor sense biologically fixed. One conceptually simple structural change in kinship relations would therefore seem to be to reduce this mothering-father differentiation between men and women, so that instead of women mainly mothering and men mainly fathering, women and men each parent children in an approximately equal balance. In other words, what if men and women each related to children in the same fashion— What if men and women each had not all the same tasks, but essentially the same mix of responsibilities and behaviors, called parenting, rather than one gender having almost all the nurturing as well as tending, caring, cleaning, and other maintenance tasks, called mothering, and the other gender having most of the disciplining and many more decision-based tasks, and not much of the tending, cleaning, caring, and other maintenance tasks, called fathering. What if instead of one gender being more involved and caring and the other being less involved and more aloof, each was similarly engaged? This particular idea comes from the work of Nancy Chodoro, most prominently in a book titled The Reproduction of Mothering*. Chodoro's book made a case that mothering is a role that is socially, not biologically defined, and that as mothers, women produce daughters who, in turn, not only have mothering capacities, but desire to mother. These capacities and needs, Chodoro wrote, are built into and grow out of this mother-daughter relationship itself. By contrast, Chodoro continued, women as mothers and men as not mothers produce sons whose nurturance capacities and needs have been systematically curtailed and repressed. Shotaro went on to spell out the implication that the sexual and familial division of labor in which women mother and are more involved in interpersonal affective relationships than men produces in daughters and sons a division of psychological capacities which leads them to reproduce this sexual and familial division of labor. It seems to me to follow that perhaps one feature of a vastly improved society regarding gender relations will be that men and women both parent, with little division between mothering and fathering. Another structure that comes into question when thinking about improved sex-gender relations is the nuclear family. This has to do with the locus of child care and familial involvement. Is it very narrow, such as resting with only two, one or two biological parents, Or does it instead involve more people, perhaps an extended family, or also friends and community members? It seems highly unlikely that a good society would require people to live alone, in pairs, in groups, or in any single or even in any few patterns, or would literally dictate household roles and functions. The key point is instead likely to be diversity on the one hand, and that whatever diverse patterns exist, each frequently chosen option embodies features that promote gender equity rather than gender hierarchy. While I don't feel equipped to describe all such possible features, and actually I doubt anyone is, we can certainly say that the men and women that are born, brought up, and then themselves bear and bring up new generations in a new and much better society will need to be full, capable, and confident in their demeanor, and to also lack differentiations that limit and confine the personality or the life trajectories of either. And perhaps we can say broadly the same about sexuality and intergenerational relations. We don't now know, or, arguably, even have a very loose picture of what fully liberated sexuality will be like in all its multitude of preferences and practices. We don't know now or even have a full picture or even a loose picture perhaps of what diverse forms of intergenerational relations adults and their children and elders will enter into. But perhaps we can say not only that in future desirable societies no few patterns will be elevated above all others as mandatory, but that all widely chosen options will preclude producing in people a proclivity to dominate or obey based either on gender, sexual orientation, age, or any other social or biological characteristic. A good society will eliminate oppressive socially imposed definitions, so that everyone can pursue their lives as they choose, whatever their sex, sexual preference, or age. There will be no non-biologically imposed sexual division of activity, with all or even nearly all men doing one kind of work, and all or nearly all women doing another simply by virtue of their being men and women. Nor will there be any hierarchical role demarcation of individuals according to sexual preference. We will have gender relations that respect the social contributions of women as well as men, insofar as they may differ in one degree or another, and that promote sexuality that is physically rich and emotionally fulfilling. It is likely, for example, that new kinship forms will overcome the possessive narrowness aspect of monogamy, while also allowing preservation of the depth and continuity aspect that comes from lasting relationships. New forms will likely destroy arbitrary divisions of roles between men and women, so that both sexes are free to nurture and to initiate. They will likely also give children room for self-management, even as they also provide the support and structure that children need. One can imagine, for example, collectives or communities, including ways for children to not only bond, but to support one another's intentions. Obviously, women must have the freedom to have children without fear of sterilization or economic deprivation, and also the freedom not to have children through unhindered access to birth control and abortion. But feminist kinship relations must also ensure that child-rearing roles do not segregate tasks by gender and that there is support for traditional couples, single parents, lesbian and gay parenting, and more complex multiple parenting arrangements. All parents must have easy access to high-quality daycare, flexible work hours, and parental leave options. The point is not to absolve parents of child-rearing by turning over the next generation to uncaring agencies staffed mainly by women, or even by women and men, who are accorded low esteem. The point is instead to elevate the status of child rearing, to encourage highly personalized interaction between children and and adults, and to distribute responsibilities for these interactions equitably between men and women throughout society. We might also consider whether this can and perhaps should be taken a step further. In our participatory economic vision, we made a case for what we call balanced job complexes, in which each worker does a mix of tasks, which mix, however, for all workers, is, in some, comparably empowering. Each job complex, in other words, has both empowering and disempowering tasks, so that by way of their total work experience, each worker, each worker is comparably empowered as each other worker. The reason we argued for doing this was to avoid the creation of what we called a coordinator class working class hierarchy. That is, we argued in some detail that the empowerment effects of a division of labor that left some empowered and most disempowered inexorably caused the former to dominate the latter. To avoid that, we urged that we therefore needed, as a core part of our economic vision, jobs that were balanced for empowerment effects. Empowerment effects of work on confidence, skills, decision-making access, etc. were that special, that important. So, by analogy, what if we look at kin relations, family relations, gender interactions, for aspects that are also of fundamental importance requiring special attention? Chodoro's work answered that tasks associated with mothering and fathering the next generation are that important, so that unless apportioned rather equally among men and women, instead of having women mothering and men fathering, their skewed apportionment would induce sexism in the next generation. Okay, is there anything else that has such powerful differential effects on personality, behavior, skills, and beliefs, that to apportion it in a gender-biased way will be horribly detrimental? Cynthia Peters, a feminist activist who I became friends with when we both worked for South End Press years back, and have remained friends with since, thought about this and decided that yes, there was. Consider what we might call caring work, or empathetic work, as compared to more aloof work that doesn't entail comparable caring for others, and pay attention writ larger than only inside families, where the distinction is mothering and fathering. So now we are talking about mostly activity that is face to face and involves one party personally engaging with another, or sometimes with a few others, with the specific purpose of attending to their needs. In other words, we are talking about activities like nursing, social work, psychiatry, perhaps teaching, counseling, and so on. The assertion would be that these kinds of interpersonal caring tasks convey to the people doing them, whether inside living units or in the broader society, social skills, perceptivity and empathy that are necessary to a healthy personal and social life. As touched, the thinking proceeds, these tasks should be shared in a balanced way, at least as much as possible, throughout the whole population. They should not be monopolized into relatively few jobs that only a few do, much less into a few jobs that are overwhelmingly done by one or another gender. So this broad analysis would not only seek for society to have men and women each both doing a balanced mix of mothering and fathering tasks when inside living units, but also overall, in their whole life activities, a balanced share of caring tasks. Partly this has been proposed as simply a matter of healthy life paths in general, but also partly as a matter of attaining gender equity. Continuing, feminism should presumably also embrace a liberated vision of sexuality, respectful of individuals' inclinations and choices, whether homosexual, bisexual, heterosexual, monogamous, or non-monogamous. Beyond respecting human rights, the exercise and exploration of different forms of sexuality by consenting partners provides a variety of experiences that can benefit everyone. In a desirable society that has eliminated oppressive hierarchies, we can imagine that sex can be pursued solely for emotional, physical, and spiritual pleasure and development or, of course, as part of loving relationships. Experimentation to such ends will likely not merely be tolerated but appreciated. We can, in any case, surely say that we need a vision of gender relations in which women are no longer subordinate, and the talents and intelligence of half the species is free at last. We need a vision of gender relations in which men are free to nurture, childhood is a time of play and increasing responsibility, with opportunity for independent learning, but not fear, and in which loneliness does not grip as a vice whose handle turns as each year passes. We can hope and anticipate by our demands and actions that worthy kinship vision will reclaim living from the realm of habit and necessity to make it an art form we are all equally capable of practicing and refining. But there is no pretense that all this can be achieved overnight, nor is there reason to think a single kind of partner parenting institution is best for all. While the contemporary nuclear family has proven all too compatible with patriarchal norms, a different kind of nuclear family will no doubt evolve, along with a host of other kinship forms as people freely experiment with how to achieve the goals of feminism. Participatory kinship, we can also say with perfect confidence, will not exist unto itself, of course, but affecting and being affected by other social institutions but that means we can sensibly try to determine what we can and should say about those interrelations. We already know that in a participatory economy, reproduction of sexist relations emanating from a patriarchal sex-gender system is obstructed. It isn't just that a participatory economy works nicely alongside a liberated kinship sphere. It is that a participatory economy literally militates against non-liberated relations among men and women, Participatory economic relations help unravel sexism. For example, a participatory economy will not give men relatively more empowering work or more income than women because a participatory economy cannot provide such advantages to any group relative to any other group. Balanced job complexes and self-management need and seek adults able to engage in decisions and able to undertake creative, empowering labor, regardless of their gender or any other biological or social attribution. If kinship relations press for other results, there is a contradiction, and either kinship or participatory economy must give way to the other. There is no process of a properly functioning participatory economy that would abide hierarchies born in gender relations because there are no hierarchies in a participatory economy that can abide it. Women cannot earn less for their effort than men, nor have jobs that are less empowering, nor have less say over decisions, because no one can earn less for their effort than anyone else, nor have jobs that are less empowering than anyone else, nor have less say over decisions than anyone else. Everyone gets an equitable income in accord with the duration, intensity, and onerousness of their socially valued labor, has a job balanced like others for empowerment effects, and enjoyed self-managing, say, like everyone else. But what about household labor? At this point, many feminists will quite sensibly ask. Participatory economy claims to remove the differentiation at work and an income required by contemporary sexism, but is household labor part of the economy? We can imagine a society that treats household labor of diverse types as part of its participatory economy, and we can imagine one that doesn't. Neither choice is ruled out or made inevitable purely by the logic of participatory economy. Beyond that logical openness, however, it seems to me there are some good reasons to think household labor shouldn't be organized as mainly part of the economy. First, nurturing and raising the next generation is not like producing a shirt, stereo, scalpel, or a spyglass. There is something fundamentally distorting and demeaning to conceptualizing child care and workplace production as the same type of social activity. Second, the fruits of household labor are largely enjoyed by the producer him or herself. Should I be able to spend more time on household design and maintenance and receive more income as a result? If so, I would get the output of the work and I would get more income too. This is different than other work, and it seems to me that changing the design of my living room, or keeping up my garden, or cooking meals for me and my family, is in these regards far more like consumption than production. Suppose I like to play the piano, build model airplanes, or work on my car. The activity I engage in for my hobby has much in common with work, but we call it consumption because I do it entirely under my own auspices, and most importantly, for myself. What we call work, in contrast, is, in a participatory economy, what we do under the auspices of workers' councils to produce outputs that are enjoyed by people other than just ourselves. But is there a problem with saying that because caring for and raising children is fundamentally different in kind than producing cars or screwdrivers, or saying that maintaining a household is different in its social relations and benefits than working in a factory, and in deducing from these differences... That on these bases, we shouldn't count household labor as work to be remunerated and to occur under the auspices of participatory economies, workplace institutions. If we think it is impossible to have a transformation of sex gender relations themselves, then yes, there is a problem. If the norms and structures of households and living units are highly sexist, and if a participatory economy doesn't incorporate household labor as part of the economy and subject it to participatory norms, then household labor may be done overwhelmingly by women and will, as a result, reduce their leisure or their time for other pursuits relative to men. But why assume that? Why shouldn't transformed norms for household labor be produced by a transformation of sex-gender relations themselves, rather than by calling household labor part of the economy? Take it in reverse. Consider we first mapped out a feminist sex-gender vision. I don't think many people would then ask whether we can count the workplace as a household so that it gets the benefits of the specific innovative relations that new families and living units have. We would assume instead that there would need to be a revolution in the economy, not just in kinship, and we would rely on the former for the chief redefinitions of life at work, even as we also anticipated and required that the economy abide and even abet the gains in kinship, and even as we worked to ensure that the gains of each messed compatibly with the other. In any event... Clearly, a participatory economy mitigates sexism because, on the one hand, it would have no reason to and could not incorporate sexist hierarchies, and on the other hand, it empowers and remunerates women in a manner that precludes their being easily subordinated in any other realm. The difference from capitalism in these respects is that if kinship patterns generate a sexist hierarchy— Profit-seeking economics will use that hierarchy to play less to women and to saddle them with longer hours and worse conditions, whereas participatory economics will undercut that hierarchy because it pays women like men, they have condition like men, and they have influence like men. The situation with polity is even more simple and straightforward. Of course, participatory, legislative, and other structures would not favor one gender versus another. And participatory laws would comply with the implications of feminist kinship, as feminist kinship would nurture and socialize people capable of abiding participatory, self-managing political relations. So the participatory polity will have norms or laws, constitutional and otherwise, guaranteeing that political relations are consistent with and even reproductive of the feminist benefits of new kinship relations and vice versa. The situation is similar for culture and kinship. The latter would exert pressure on the former by way of the kinds of feminist men and women that it delivers to participate in cultural celebration and definition. The former would exert pressure on the latter by way of the kinds of mutually respected celebrations, language, and personal identifications and values it delivers for men and women to enjoy. Perhaps it reflects the paucity of my understanding, but other than in direct analogy to the above discussion, I honestly don't see a deeper relation of economics, politics, or intercommunalism and sexuality. If there is homophobia or other sexual hierarchies in, in a society, and if the economy is capitalist, then the economy will, to the extent owners are able to do so, exploit whatever differentials and bargaining power they are handed. Similarly, a typically top-down polity or hierarchical culture will at least reflect and often also exacerbate those differentials. Beyond this, however, the capitalist economy and any authoritarian polity and culture may also incorporate gain straight behavioral differences into economic rules and consumption patterns. With participatory economy and participatory polity, however, no exploitation of sexual difference is even possible, much less abetted in the economy, Because there is one norm of remuneration and one logic of labor definition that applies to everyone, and which, by their very definition, foreclose options of hierarchy, while the polity derives from and thus reflects and protects the will of men and women schooled by feminist relations. What about intergenerational conflict? Capitalism will always exploit age differentials for profit via diminished remuneration for the young and old, due to these constituencies' reduced bargaining power. It will take advantage of different capacities related to age for exploitative divisions of labor, and will rush premature labor entry or delay warranted labor withdrawal for exploitative reasons. A participatory economy, however, will not only promote humane behaviors as being in every participant's interest, and, in any event, the only effective way of being, but will make violations impossible due to being contrary to defining participatory economic norms and structures. In a participatory economy, there is no way to exploit age-based differences because there is no way to accrue advantage to any group at all relative to any other. Similarly, a participatory polity will likewise protect and incorporate the will of people of all ages, as self-management permits nothing less. Societies will collectively decide the role of the elderly, including retirement age and likewise for the age of young people's entry into economic and political responsibility as part of participatory decision-making. While other extra-economic intergenerational relations will certainly not be governed solely by economic or political structures, and will arise instead due to a host of variables, including especially new kinship and gender relations— The fact that a participatory economy and a participatory polity require developed and fully participatory and self-managing actors imposes on life, more generally, respect for all actors, and gives all actors material equity and behavioral wherewithal and habits contrary to any kind of subordination emanating from any other of society's institutions. Participatory socialism, or participatory society, turns out to be, in this view and at its foundation, a combination of new economic, political, cultural, and kinship relations, each designed to further our preferred values, and each operating in entwined, compatible concert with the rest. The vision to which we will soon add what we call an intercommunal aspect cultural, and community vision, and then later discuss some elements of other facets of life, like education, health, arts, sports, and so on, can hopefully provide hope, inspire commitment, and inform strategy, or, if it falls short of those aims, inspire improvements which accomplish those aims. But be that as it may, for now, this is Michael Albert signing off until next time for Revolution Z.